Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon, the podcast that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's episode is drum and bass producer Stranger, who started producing music in 1996. Over his 25-year career so far, he's released music on well-respected labels such as Metalheads, 31 Records, Hospital and Renegade Hardware. And he's just released his six-track Monk Fruit EP on Worst Behaviour back in October 2020. We jumped into Stranger's experience of growing up in Toronto, Canada and discovering drum and bass music for the first time. Why he started his record label Deviant Audio in 2016 and the importance of his mission to demystify music production so that virtually anyone can succeed at making music. And if you love this episode, leave a small tip on my Bitcoin jar as it really does help the podcast. You can find the address to my Bitcoin wallet in the show notes below. So if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Stranger. Hello Stranger, welcome to the podcast. So for people who aren't familiar with your drum and bass music, record label and YouTube channel, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so like, like you said, my name is Stranger. I am a drum and bass producer. I have been making music since 1996. And I've um, over the years, I've seen this music evolve and grow. So it's been an exciting journey from seeing the technology progress as with the music. So um, my interest in music and my desire to learn has definitely keep me engaged for over 20 years and I'm still learning to this day. And I think that's what the beauty is about this music in general is that there's always something to learn, which keeps you engaged. And that's great. So just before we sort of jump into your creative journey so far, I'd just like to frame the context of our conversation for our listeners. So how would you describe drum and bass music to someone who's never heard it before? Yeah, so I guess one of the main characteristics of drum and bass is that it usually is at 170 beats per minute. Now, that may sound very fast to someone that may not be particularly uh, akin to these tempos, but it's, it's actually a very groovy style of music where you have really fast drums, but you have bass lines that are more slower and groovy, which gives it that vibe. So drum and bass is a style of music that, um, I guess, evolved from early rave music in the 90s and artists that that pioneered it include people like Four Hero, uh, Goldie, Dillinger. I mean, I'm not doing this justice because I, I'm just naming names yeah, on the yeah. top of my head, but there's so so many artists out there. Ray Keith, Peche, uh, Lemon D, I mean, uh, Fotech. So many artists that have paved the way for uh, drum and bass producers now today. So I think it's a very exciting music. As I said, it's a style of music that evolves as te- technology evolves. So it, to me, it is just getting better and better. So I think the main characteristics is fast drums and groovy bass lines. And drum and bass music is actually a very wide ranging term because there are so many subgenres with different vibes and feels. So there's more... I guess, jazzy style 
drum and bass. Sometimes we call it liquid drum and bass where you have really lush and beautiful soundscapes. Sometimes you have vocals and other live instrumentation such as saxophones and guitars. And then you have more very aggressive style drum and bass, like neural drum and bass, which is, which sounds a lot more technical where mm. producers spend hours to design synthetic sounding bass lines that just kind of morph and grow and growl and that's a very exciting style as well and in between those there's so many other styles there's jungle music which some would say is the predecessor of drum and bass it's the more rugged form where you have sporadic breaks multiple drums layered together with a pounding sub bass so um Again, I've been doing drum and bass for over 20 years and it's an exciting art form and that's why I'm still engaged with it today. And I guess we should sort of talk about as well the aiming break, which is one of the foundations which drum and bass is built upon and there's many different um, variations of those I've seen from your YouTube videos. You sort of cut them up in different uh, patterns and stuff. Um, just for people who don't know what the aiming break is and it's really what you're going to hear within, within I guess, like most sort of drum and bass sort of songs as it being like a key foundational element. How would you sort of describe that to someone as well? So once someone dives into the culture of drum and bass and jungle music, you'll start hearing the term amen or amen break or amen tune. And the word is almost synonymous to jungle music because uh, the amen break, so a break is a drum loop sampled from usually an old record from the 60s or 70s from funk and soul music and during uh, that era of music such as music by james brown for example you'll have a song where in the middle you have a drum break where the drummer has a solo it's like every um, musician in the band gets a moment where they can shine and have a solo so the drum break is when the drummer gets to have his time to shine so there's no other sounds but the drummer playing and that's an opportune time for today's producer and musician to sample because you have a clear opportunity to to cut um, a slice or snippet of that drum loop and then rearrange it for your own composition so the amen break comes from a record by the winstons the song is called amen brother and it is w one of the thickest and most fullest sounding drum breaks in history which is why it has been used in thousands if not tens of thousands of records to this day and it still hasn't gotten old because of the sonic possibilities that the amen um can provide because it sounds so full and so there's so much that you can do when you process it with technology by bending it and eqing and bringing out different characters and frequencies out of the amen not to mention rearranging it and chopping it up to the most minute detail to make some crazy crazy sounding jungle music um, so just following on from that question, before we jump into your work as a music producer and your creative journey yeah. so far, I'd like to know as a teenager, what was the first song that you really appreciated at an artistic level? Wow. I mean, to go way back when I, to, I, to, I guess the first memories of music that I, that I really appreciated would probably be in the 80s when I was still 
a young child, um, music by Madonna and Depeche Mode. I was always just gravitated by electronic sounding music, like the beats, something about those, those styles. It just, it just predominantly been into music that had electronic beats. So it just kind of grew from there because, um, of that interest, there's there has always been that interest to make music myself. So, my parents got me a a keyboard um, when I was eight or ten years old, and I would make little jingles from there. So, I I, I think I, I can't name one specific artist. There's been I I mean, like I said, going back to the first memories I have of music that really inspired me, those were names, and then I got into house music in the mid 90s so people like Armand Van Helden, Todd Terry, a masters at work Louis Vega, Kenido Gonzalez um those were names that inspired me a uh, Josh Wink so I was really in the house music and then shortly after I learned about drum and bass because in around 96 I think that was when Goldie's Timeless album came out and there was just lots of press about this drum and bass music because of Goldie's album. I started to hear more and more about it. I started to hear bits and pieces. Even in commercial radio in Toronto, Canada, they were playing drum and bass songs on the radio once in a while. So mm. I was just really curious about this style of music and, and I just started to explore it more and I bought my first drum and bass CDs. I think um, the first one was Alex Reese, uh, Pulp Fiction, his album. Then I bought Reinforced, uh, Enforcers Above the Law, and then Metalhead's Platinum Breaks. And those those were pivotal albums for me because it was what, what got me into drum and bass. And I have to say when I first heard the style, at the time it was called, I think it was like called Hardcore Rave or Breakbeat Techno. I actually was kind of thrown aback by it because it was so, so out there with the menacing sounds, the crazy drums and the, and the bass and the samples. I, I, the first time I, the first, first time I put on and listened to Enforcers Above the Law on Reinforced Records, I put it on, on for 10 seconds and then I put it down. I was like, I can't listen to this. I, this is like, devil's music i don't really yeah. get it this is insane and then after some time i gave it another chance and it was in a click i was like wow this music is mental i love this and this is what i want to do yeah so i just want to dive just a little bit deeper here uh, for a moment um so i'd like to take you back to the first time you heard doc scott's uh, 1996 drum bass track unofficial ghost and specifically yeah. what was it about that metallic 808 hi-hat that really resonated with you in the context of the kind of um what i think is kind of interesting the kind of sounds that you were interacting with your sort of day-to-day -life, uh, day -day life um did you grow up in sort of canada i should just sort of say yeah i grew up in canada yeah in toronto what was it about that sort of environment and plus the music because i think those there's a great correlation between the sort of music you listen to and the environment you grew up in so could you sort of speak yeah. a bit about that yeah absolutely uh so i grew up in east toronto so it was a very multicultural community so you would get exposed to uh, a variety of cultures in terms of food music and what have you so uh, growing up in my uh, teenage years uh, i was 
around a lot, lots of different types of music. And um, like I said, I've always gravitated towards um, electronic style music. So before I even got into house, I think I got into uh, what they call Euro dance. Mm. So that was before I knew about the underground stuff. So um, that was my uh, exposure to dance music. And then during the same time, um, I was hearing music like Miami bass, um, electro, like African bambata, and those sounds always gravitated to me. And that's, I guess, uh, that's where you bring up the point of that metallic 808 uh, hi-hat sound. That specific hi-hat has always really i've always loved the sound of that particular hi-hat and i heard it first uh when i was a kid uh, on africa bombadas um um oh no i'm thinking trying to think of it as well i know the one you um i know the one you mean planet rock that's yes. it yeah, yeah, yeah planet rock so that that song was one of the first songs i heard of 808 there's tons of other things egyptian lover those songs i grew up with when i was like 10 11 12 years old so um, I mean, I've always been exposed to the 808s, those hi-hats, the booming bass, and then hearing it in hip-hop, and then finally in drum and bass with Doc Scott's Unofficial Ghost, one of my favorite records. It, I just, it's, it's a sound I've always loved, and it, it has tested the, uh, I mean, over time, it's still... It's still used so much today, even in contemporary music, and you hear it all the time. And I think there's a reason why. There's something about it that just sounds so nice, that sharp, precise, metallic sound of that hi-hat. And the, the rhythms that can, you can do with it just sound really good because of the character of that metallic hit. Just following on from that question, we did sort of speak briefly about Goldie's 1995 album, uh, Timeless, and there was also the Melthead, uh, Melthead Nights at uh, the Blue Night Nightclub in London. Yeah. And what's sort of interesting, what I find fascinating about this is you say that it sort of reached you through uh, through like commercials and uh, people writing about it and being able to sort of find the music. But this is sort of almost sort of pre-internet, so there wasn't a case you could go online and and sort of get them directly, or maybe there was LimeWire, I, I forget, on Napster or something, where there are ways you could get sort of that sort of music. But it's kind of like seeing this bubbling up and you emerging sort of sound in this other country and then it sort of reaching you. And I just wondered, um, for you, when you'd heard that sort of sound, for you and your sort of social group, um, what community grew out of that? And did you interact with other sort of fellow drum and bass um, uh, fans, uh, for want, want for a better word? That's a good question. And the the first thing I had to say, I think, is that Canada and um, and UK, I think there was always that cultural uh, back and forth. And I think that's uh, that that relationship has always has really helped in drum and bass migrating to Toronto. We had one of the biggest drum and bass scenes in outside of United Kingdom in the during the nineties and even into the two thousands. We would have raves. 5,000, 10,000 people. Right. But um, yeah, but going back to your question about community. So I got into drum and bass around 96. So uh, it was pre-internet. However, we had local internet communities called bulletin board systems, uh, short form BBS, where you would dial into these local communities with your modem and... Um, so these communities, you had communities for different interests. So I joined a 
um, bulletin board system called The Club, which is geared towards dance music and dance music production. And from here, that's where I met my first mentors, um, Dope Groove from Scarborough, Toronto, who showed me the, who got, was my first mentor into making music with a tracker software, which is software made used to make video game music right. uh, during those years. And then I met uh, one of my best friends, uh, Andrew, who goes by Fringe today, where we still talk every day today. He's He still makes music and he was the one that got, well, showed me how to, uh, I guess, uh, make jungle music. I, I had no idea how to do jungle drum and bass back when I was experimenting with house. I was trying to recreate break beats with single hit drum hits from the 909, but I had no idea what the break beat was. So uh, Andrew Henderson, aka Fringe, was the one who put me in the right path in terms of jungle drum and bass production. So that's where I uh, met my uh, first, I guess, friends in this music it kind of grew from there there was a um then shortly after the internet started to grow and there was a community in toronto called toronto jungle and that's where i met more friends such as uh uh zero equals zero who was a uh who uh, had some pretty crazy jungle tracks uh, back in the day, Bailey, DJ Bailey used to play zero, zero, zero equals zeros tracks. Uh, he still does some crazy stuff today. Um, but yeah, um, I think the internet helped me uh, create, well, helped create community in Toronto for music. And of course, um, we did have a college radio in Toronto. So uh, Marcus Visionary uh, had a radio show on the University of Toronto. Uh, radio station. Uh, there was another DJ Medicine Muffin. He had another show on a different university station. Mm -hmm. Those were my first, I guess, uh, radio shows that helped me ex help me be exposed to more of this music. So um, I would say, yeah, during those years, there there was enough. I, I think um, enough groups and communities and I guess uh, shows to to really help the drum and bass culture grow. I'd just like to sort of take you back. So it's one thing, you know, when you're listening to drum and bass on a sort of CD player with your headphones in, and it's sort of this really sort of atonal noise. It's another, you know, it's a completely different world from when you actually go to a rave and you hear it on a huge PA system and they're cranking it really like hard. And there's a huge crowd of people, you know, doing screw faces, throwing the guns and sirens and stuff. So what was your experience of going to your first drum and bass party slash rave? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I, I, the first rave I went to, I was, I think, 18 or turning 19. I had to sneak out of the house to go. Uh, so my parents wouldn't approve of it. However, um, yeah, it was a, a, there was a company called Renegades. I think it was their two year anniversary and it was held at a, uh, a at a Masonic tempo, funny wow. enough. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it it was crazy. So they had NDC, um, DJ, uh, Rand Randall was there, MCGQ. I think there was one more headliner, and then we had Toronto, some of Toronto's um, 
um, drum-and-bass ambassadors there, Marcus Visionary, the Vinyl Syndicate Crew, Sniper Market, uh, Sniper Mystical. So, uh, yeah, it was held at the Masonic Temple. It was just, it was godly. Like, the the, 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 the sound system, I, I don't know if it was because I was still so small and young at that time, but looking at the speakers, they, it looked colossal and the sound was colossal because the bass was so pulverizing. It, it was just out of this world. That sounds amazing. But, yeah. you know, Ransom 96, it was almost pre-door, definitely no Ableton Live around there. So you were going out to raves and then were you going out and then making, afterwards making music afterwards? Um, and what kind of sort of software were you using? I know you said you were using um, video Tracker. game soundtracks sort of software, yeah. but what was that sort yeah. of initial process like? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there was always that... Um, relationship of going out to a rave and being inspired as first and foremost i'm i'm a music producer so going to out to an event is i always put there's always that i have that cap on where i'm listening for ideas and i'm taking in the music and it it it's it's so coming coming back from a rave there's always that inspiration and want to go back into the studio take that input put it back out into my own music. And I think one of your earliest sort of synthesizers you were using was the virus, because I saw on one video you were sort of like going yeah. through it. In terms of you were saying like you you knew it sort of through and through and like now it'd be, it'd be quite difficult to sort of like go back in terms of the, pro, the sort of processes and stuff. But I just wondered in terms of would you sort of sit in front of your virus, then you'd be sort of like sampling, like having the your drum beats sort of like going, and then how would you kind of sort of piece that together? Because I can imagine it was almost sort of like a jigsaw puzzle piece because now we've got infinite takes, you know, huge hard drives, plugins and that kind of thing. Once again, I do have to shout out my good friend Zero Eco Zero who taught me the basics of synthesis uh, in, in my early days. And he showed me how to make the Reese bass with, the, with detune, uh, sawtooth and learning how to use a filter. I think it really just comes of that from that, just learning the basics of shaping a sound from um, the, the changing the pitch of the oscillators, changing the shape of the oscillators, and then applying filters. So, um, I mean, during when I was playing with the virus, it's just not different from playing with a VST digital um, uh, synth, uh, soft synth. It's you're just playing with it. You're playing along. You're playing on the keyboard, turning maybe turning the filter up or down, tweaking it. So the process is the same. It's just you're playing with something that's tactile, right? right? I guess the only difference is because I was playing with a hardware synth. I would have to record the take. Um, and then the good part is you can still save the presets. So if you like something, but you change something by accident and you want to go back to it, you still can do that. Um, but the only thing with hardware synthesizers is you have to record that take into mm. your DAW. So just diving a little deep here, I wanted to do a mini creative comparison between two tracks so firstly focusing on the sort of inspiration ideas as well as sort of production techniques so i picked you one of your earliest tracks freezing point which was released in 2000 and then a recent one monk fruit released in uh, 2020 so could you talk me through like your creative headspace as you produce these tracks 
Yeah, sure. So freezing point. So I th- I think that the record um, was labeled incorrectly, and they may they may have flipped it when they printed it. So freezing point is a a two step kind of pre neuro Reese drum and bass track. Right. So there's this Reese sound there, and what was the process behind that track? I mean, I can still remember it to this day, even though I made it over 25 years ago. Is that I was really inspired by uh, Doc Scott's shadow boxing, that that menacing Reese sound, and I was trying to recreate it with very little knowledge of synthesis. This is before I learned how to do sound design with synthesizers. So I the only thing I had was a program called SoundForge and some basic synth tools that can make like, I don't, I think I was making it from a, a, a sample actually. I think I, it was pulled from, I took a, maybe it was a trumpet or a cello right. sample. So a long cello sound. And I was, I put it through like, like 10 rounds of distortion and sound forge, adding chorus and flanging until somehow magically I came up with this menacing Reese sound that was similar to shadow boxing. Uh, I was actually quite impressed at that time that I was actually actually able to um, come up with those results. So that was the basic process of making freezing point was that I really wanted to learn how to make that Resound, and from there it just grew into a track. Um, monk fruit would be a completely different process. I was more influenced by the modern kind of jungle footwork juke style drama bass that was coming coming up, which had really interesting syncopated rhythms, dotted quarter notes, dotted eighth notes with eight oh eights and um. And layered with jungle breaks. So I was just, for that one, I was just playing with different, I guess, 808 rhythms and, and polyrhythms to come mm. with a cool groove. Just sort of a larger question in your creative process. Is there any sort of, a, is there a sort of conceptual nature to your music in terms of like more conceptual ideas where you're exploring certain themes perhaps within sort of society or your own sort of like life experience that feeds into some of those tracks? I think my creative process probably is split into two. One where I'm experimenting with technical processes and and like I said, that interest in learning keeps you going. So if there's yeah. something to learn, it gives you an intent to be in a session. So um so that that that's one way where I get inspiration. It's just learning different techniques and and creating sounds and from that it just evolves into a track where sometimes um i may be inspired by just life experiences from traveling or or different personal experiences that you want to put back into your music and that's where it's more about um putting your emotions outputting your emotions into into your music what would you say is your most personal track that you've uh, produced today? And if it's not too personal to ask, what was the inspiration behind it? So I definitely have a number of tracks that I consider personal and even dear to my heart. One of the first tracks that come to the top of my mind would be Desole, which came out on a Metalheads mixed CD over 15, 20 years ago. And this is a track I produced with 
Gremlins, who I produced many tracks with in the 2000s. And the reason why this one is a very personal track is that I wrote this in around the age of 21 when I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. Um, this was a very dark period in my life where I really had to consider what was really important in my life. I guess when you face your mortality, you really start to ask these questions and you really come to an understanding in terms of what is really important in life. And for me, it was really about the people that I was close with, the people that I, I loved as well as making music. You realize that all the other things don't really matter, the money, the fame, the house, the cars, those are all just small details. And really what should be important are your relationships and doing what you love, what you're passionate about. And at that point in my life, I decided that I wanted to do this full time, that I wanted to commit my life to a, as a creative person at, in, in making music. So that's how Desolé came about. It was written during that period in my life. And I do think that track represents that period accurately because it is a track that goes through different emotions where you start with hope. It breaks down to a section where it gets really nitty gritty and dark and it becomes hopeful again. And I think that really tells the story of that period in my life. Which brings yeah. me nicely on to my next question. Uh, so you started producing music in 1996. We jump forward, I believe, sort of 20 years to when you started yeah. your own record label, uh, Deviant yeah. Audio. So yeah. what was the creative spark behind that and what made you want to become a label boss and support other music producers? I think it spawned from wanting an outlet for myself to, to have full creative control. Um... I was making music where, which I found it was difficult to find a home outside of my own outlet. So that's really where it started and it kind of grew from there. Um, I have a circle of friends that make amazing music and I just wanted to support my friends with the, this label. So it really just grew from there. Um, we have a couple releases right that are slated. However, we are a small team, so mm -hmm. unfortunately, we we aren't able to accept demos at the at this point because of that. And we we are shifting our focus this year to instead of only releasing music to uh, also to opening up our well, we're pivoting our model towards providing tools and resources to to help other producers excel and grow. So mm -hmm. uh, it kind of extends from my personal brand and mission today, which is how to help others succeed uh, through my educational content on YouTube and my um, my tools. The Deviant Audio will be an extension of my personal brand, right. which is, again, to provide knowledge and tools so uh, producers can succeed in today's landscape. And I just want to ask you, can you remember perhaps when you were growing up, um, 
where or was there a particular teacher or some sort of influence that made you because obviously teaching teaching is a very sort of special skill that requires a very, you know a fundamental self uh, skill set to be able to teach other people and help them learn and also you know deal with their own learning processes which is very different from if you are you know like a dmb producer and you're amazing technically amazing really gifted but that doesn't mean that you can actually teach somebody else to produce yeah. so is there a particular person or somewhere you can point to where you're like oh i can actually teach people i think it just grew from uh, i've always played the role of teaching with my friends mm -hmm. friends that wanted to learn whether it was in school where they wanted to learn or learn how to do homework or something uh i'd be the go-to person uh so it just grew from there into um, in, when I got into music production, I became the go-to guy when people wanted to learn music and it just evolved naturally from there where I started to pr pursue it professionally. And I started to have, um, or teach, uh, privately as well as in group right. uh, in Toronto. And I, I guess that has evolved to, uh, today where I'm teaching online to a broader community. And I just want to jump back to the sort of label side of things, because I think it's sort of fair to say that drum and bass was built on uh, the pressing of vinyl dub plates, uh, DJs playing them exclusively in dark and sweaty clubs in the early 90s, which is a world away from streaming music culture. So how have you sort of handled that transition away from sort of physical media, nightclubs to sort of like download streaming services and basically live DV, uh, DJ sets on YouTube? As an artist, it it it's it's all about just getting music out. So whether it's, whether it's on digital platforms or on vinyl and dub play, it, it's just a medium and a channel at the end of the day for me, it's all about just getting music out to the listener, whatever that medium is. So uh, I, I think um, as a musician and, and as a uh, entrepreneur, you just got to adapt with what is happening with technology and culture and shift your business model to to go with it. Was there a point early in your sort of DJing career where you were wandering around with flight cases full of really heavy yeah. um, dub yeah. plates? And, uh, and also I imagine with dub plates from what I've, my research, I've read that it was quite competitive as well of who could get a particular dub plate that was sort of like exclusive, they'd play it and people would be trying to sort of steal them and this kind of sort of thing. So how did you kind of manage the sort of exclusivity of your music and also your selection of the kind of things that you'd be playing? Yeah, so we also had dub plate presses here in Toronto. So uh, it's one of the things that, that really, I guess, uh, um, motivated me to make more music is to have more exclusive music because i i didn't have access to uk dub plates uh some djs here did because they had those relationships with the artists in uk i, I didn't as much so i had to make up my own tunes so um uh when i would get booked for a rave that's that's huge inspiration for me to make five ten new dub tracks so i can cut it onto dub play i have new stuff to play that's always been my thing is having new exclusive music in my set and that's what has uh has been a factor in keeping me active and making music 
See, that was definitely your, um, your, I guess, your signature style because each DJ will have their own. So yours was like the freshness, the newness of the things that you're always bringing. So you've always been forward thinking in terms of your approach to drum and bass and the sort of sounds you were sort of looking for. Because I guess what can happen is it can become quite tribal that people get fixed into a certain style of drum and bass and that's the scene. And if you uh, venture outside of that, you're seen as somebody who's not supporting that scene or, or kind of turning your back on it. Um, so yeah. is there any sort of issues with that in terms of as you progress through the different styles of drum and bass? Well, first and foremost, I, I think uh, I, I, I always like to be firmly rooted in my um, in my foundation, which is the uh, early styles of drum and bass and jungle. And that has always um, helped me guide my creative decisions forward. Um I've, I mean, every now and then I would get comments like, why don't you get back into making jungle and all that? And mm. I I don't really understand that because I've never stopped making jungle. I've always ma made jungle. It's just, I think my, some, I guess some listeners are impatient and they only want to hear one style from an artist where as me as an artist, I, I am a, I'm a full range artist and I like to experiment with different styles and techniques and that will dictate what sounds come out. So to anyone that may feel um, maybe uh, discouraged my, my output, I would say don't be because mm. I'm always making all sorts of music. It just, you have to be patient because it takes time to put music out. I can say that there's tons of jungle that I have that I want to put out, but there's also tons of modern style drum and bass that's going to come out as well. So I've always been that artist that likes to experiment with different sounds. I don't like to limit myself to one sound. Uh, some have said that that's been, um, that's been, uh, that has limited my career because uh, there are some artists that are really good at just making one sound and they're really good at def creating a, I guess, a, a brand around a sound. Whereas I like to make a liquid track and then a, 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 a dance floor track to then a jungle track. But I think in the end, if you really listen to it, you can hear that it is it has my personal stamp because there is that still that personal way of doing things in the studio that will come out in a track whether i'm doing a drum and bass or jungle track um, and just sort of jumping into other artists you've supported you just put out the uh, track avarice on a band camp so and forgive me i'm terribly dyslexic so i'm going to struggle with the guy's name is it try trio tier kahoot Right, Tiergoo. Yeah, thank yeah. you for that. Um, yeah. So, talk about Tiergoo. I mean, how did you sign that track to your label, and what kind of sales numbers do you kind of look for when you sign an artist to your label or a track, I should say? Yeah, so Tiergoo, uh, I met about four or five years ago. He's a younger producer that's coming up. He's uh, very talented in the studio. He has a very specific technical and creative process, and uh, I've seen his sound and technique grow over the years and and very excited for his future so um uh, we've been supporting him a lot through the label uh not to mention other artists such as groves who signed to um d bridges um exit recordings as well 
and my buddy Captivate, who um, who's been uh, who was recently featured on Drum and Bass Arena with Mystic State. So we have a circle of artists that are very talented. Um, as for the business side of Deviant, in terms of music, I'm I don't really pay attention to the numbers because it, it, the music the 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 business side is so small unless you're a huge label i'm not really concerned about that i'm more just concerned about getting music heard right so um the more people that can hear our music the better i see and yeah. i guess like is, would you say that well i mean obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic now but would you say that live side of things is more important that you the people at events would book you and your fellow artists to play at live events because i can imagine that's going to reach in a way it's more immediate and perhaps would reach uh, more people because um on a more visceral level because in terms of the amount of music or just general music that's put out every day it's literally millions and millions and millions of tracks yeah. so really great music could just get literally lost in the shuffle yeah, you're right. There, there's so much music out, and it's really hard to break out as an artist today. I, I won't say it's not possible. So don't be discouraged if you're hearing this. However, you have to really learn the intricacies of uh, being an independent artist and even running a business. So I would say to any anyone who's getting into it, don't be discouraged. Learn all the intricacies of this business. Don't just focus on making music unless that's all you want to do and you just want to stay in your bedroom and just make music and have an audience of yeah. 50 people. But if you really want to get hurt, then you're going to have to learn networking skills, marketing skills, social media skills. I mean, I think in one way, because there's so much music, it's harder for an dependent music today but on the other end it's a lot more easier for an independent artist because we have all these tools that have kind of democratized the music industry in terms of social media tools marketing tools distribution tools you can get your music out on streaming platforms yourself so all those tools are available to you today so that you don't have to depend on and on a record label you can build up an audience on on Instagram, on YouTube, on TikTok, and then you can start getting your music out there. So um, I would say, don't be discouraged. There are tools out there. You just have to work really hard, learn how to build a brand, build web presence, and learn marketing, graphic design, networking, meet people. You gotta, you gotta build a community, right? You gotta build a good support group. So. Um, connect with like-minded artists and other people in the industry that you can grow together because if you if if you can find people to grow together then it's likely you will um grow a lot faster so we're in 2021 uh we're in the middle of a pandemic bubbling with social and economic upheaval so i just wondered how's that uh, impacted your day-to-day -day life producing music and mental health and sort of social life at the moment I mean, I've always been a very solitary guy. I'm very comfortable being on my own. So uh, during this period, it hasn't changed much other than I'm just in the studio more. I'm working a lot. My YouTube channel kind of grew and blew up during this whole thing. So uh, I think it happened at the right time because now people really want to learn. They have all this time mm -hmm. to learn and they're investing in themselves. So... 
I'm happy to be here uh, to to provide my my knowledge and expertise, and I'm very grateful for all the support that I've received. Uh, I've received over the last twelve months, and I I hope that uh, everyone will continue with me during this uh, journey. So. For you as an artist, I mean, I know you sort of spoken about it, you were doing these one-on-one -on -one sort of private lessons and you were teaching people, but what was that moment when you were like, right, I'm going to jump on YouTube, I'm going to start making these tutorial uh, videos? Yeah, I, I first started experimenting doing live stream production sessions on Twitch. That was about two years ago. Right. Um, I saw some relative growth, but I decided to then shift to YouTube and I didn't really take it seriously. I had one tutorial on YouTube about 10 years ago uh, about um, about processing the Amen break and it did really well, but I never really even entertained the idea of growing an audience on YouTube. But uh, a year and a half ago, I started to uh, create a little more content on YouTube. I didn't really expect it to grow. I just wanted to just put content out there. Um, but um, just uh, around, I guess, March last year, it really took off and it started to um, snowball and it's been an, an amazing journey since. So I want to just dive into a little bit of your sort of process of how you kind of go about making your video. So you've done your meditation, you've had your cup of coffee and it's time to make another YouTube uh, drum-based tutorial video. So how do you generally choose the topic of your videos and how much pre-production do you do before hitting record? Because I must say, when I watch the videos and I've watched a lot of them, you're really on point um, and they're very, they are very technical, but they are very sort of easy to follow as well. So I wondered how that sort of process evolved for you. Yeah, so... Um I've always made it an important thing to communicate um, in a way that can that my audience can understand. So there's some people that are more technical and there are some people uh, that are, I guess, less about the technical. So it's about communicating it in, in different levels so that everyone can understand. And that's always been my approach with teaching is that at first I have to understand the other person how he or she learns and then adapt my communication and teaching so that that other person can understand whether it's explaining it in a more technical way or or more generalizing it with basic concepts for the general listener to understand uh, with regards to my channel it's in my audience it's always been a symbiotic relationship. I'm always asking for feedback in terms of what everyone wants to learn. I'm looking at what's trending as well. And that goes into my planning of my YouTube channel and the topics that I teach. And do you make notes beforehand? Because I, I that's really I sort of see you when you you know exactly what to say, how to say it, and when you're and then also when you're doing the technical part. Because I guess that the hard part is you're creating and talking at the same time. So that's two very different sort of like functions to be able to talk to camera and explain and then do something at the same time. Was that something you sort of naturally were able to do, or is that something you kind of worked to sort of be that proficient at? Yeah, I think over the years, uh, you just have a process down where you have a direction you know you want to go um, when you enter a session and that probably translates 
when I do a live stream, in terms of my more edited uh, content, I do do a fair bit of planning and preparation in terms of, uh, okay, so today I may want to do a particular base sound. So how can I break this down? How do I start? Maybe I start with the big picture first and then break it down into the smaller details. So I do think having some planning helps um, with regards to that kind of content because I want to make sure once again, that um, my audience who comes from different levels and backgrounds, whether they're beginners, intermediate and advanced, that they can understand it. So definitely some planning is important. So in your opinion, what are the three most important production techniques a new drum bass producers should kind of learn? Is it drum programming, sound design, piano chords, track arrangement, mixing, that kind of thing? Uh, I can't say there's one that I think they're all important. Um, I think I, I, the very first thing to have is to have a very critical ear, being able to listen acutely and break it down because uh, having that ear can help you uh, make stronger decisions when you're in the studio, not to mention it'll help you understand music um, better because you can listen to a track critically and break it down into the different elements. And then you can um, think about the processes on how this was created. So having that critical ear and having an analytical mind, I think helps. I think that's the most important. And then you can have the more technical skills, which is, um, well, I would say probably some... Music theory, just even basic music theory helps. And then some technical um, uh, uh, understanding, such as sound design, mixing, uh, recording, that kind of thing. Mm. But I think all that doesn't mean anything if you don't have that good ear and that analytical mind. If you have that, I think everything else will follow. Just a follow-on question from that. I think there's a perception amongst uh, music snobs that drum bass is just brainless noise full of foghorns, gunshots and screechy bass lines. But anybody watching one of your tutorial videos will see it's a mixture of mathematical sound design, high-level music theory, razor-sharp song arrangement. So do you think that drum bass gets the recognition it really deserves on a technical level? I think it does. I, I, I don't see where it doesn't. Um, I think... Drum and bass has a huge potential to grow and explode again. Uh, there's a lot of the newer generation of uh, listeners getting into producing. And I'm actually very excited. I, I've been learning about all these new producers um, getting into drum and bass and the sounds that they're making and the ideas that they're bringing into the, the table. The sound quality is just very exciting. And I, th I have a feeling that once this whole pandemic is over, I think drum and bass is going to gonna really blow up so i'm very excited and i'm very grateful and happy to be in this journey and that's an interesting point because i kind of feel after the pandemic so i was doing some research myself yeah. and i just wonder after this sort of pandemic that there might not be a sort of a resurgence you might get a new atari teenage riot or something coming from somewhere that's going to be more politically but more in terms of the sound more abrasive uh, i don't know if that's something you sort of kind of feel that's going to maybe sort of blow up after the pandemic perhaps yeah, well, I mean, during the 90s, I, I mean, just timing-wise, I was in that rebellious, rebellious age. So it just it just all made sense that we wanted a music to, to express and rebel with. And I think that will always, that kind of people wanting to express 
and rebel through music will that will always be a thing and I could see it happening. I mean, once again, I'm very excited about the new generation of producers coming into drum and bass and the sounds that they're making are insane. So, I mean, I'm excited to see where the music goes. And I just want to sort of jump into another side of you and your music production. So you released your uh, gnarly volume one presets for the plugin for, sir- for the serum synthesizer, if I can say that word. Um, so... What made you want to make these presets and what are the pros and cons of actually using presets in a track, would you say? Yeah, so again, my mission today is to uh, help other producers succeed and grow. So that really extends into my, uh, so that is my mission and that extends into everything I do. So um, that goes into providing tools to help producers Excel. So that's the gnarly serum pack, which is my first serum pack, has 190 presets. Um, I just felt that there's there. I wanted to fill a void in in that side of um, of I guess the business. That I, I saw that there, there wasn't enough packs with these upfront modern sounds of drum and bass. So I wanted to provide that and I wanted to provide a really quality pack in that you can buy this pack and it should be the only pack you should ever need, at least for a while. I mean, that's that's the intent I had when designing it. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm sure there's some sounds I could have provided more of and I'm hoping to improve in future packs, but in the intent was to create a pack that a producer can rely on for a, for for a very long time. So there's that's why there's a range of different sounds from the more modern foghorn and resounds as well as well as the more classic 808 wobble and jungle bass sounds. And I just sort of wonder in terms of. Um at the moment, in terms of sort of sample packs and presets and things, when you set about creating your sample pack and in relation to when you create a track, what is the level or is it is it equivalent? Is there a level of creative sort of like satisfaction? Because they're both creative outlets, they're both creative sort of like projects, but where do you kind of sort of place those two things? Or are they two very sort of separate? Uh, I just, well, I, they are related because I just enjoy making sounds. It's again, that's what's kept me engaged is just experimenting in a studio. It's just now I'm making these available to, um, anyone that wants it today. So, um, it's and to the question about pros and cons about using presets. Mm -hmm. I, some people, uh, look down on it. I don't because it's similar to how. Um, in the early days, a an artist would have a producer. It's like how Goldie had Rob Playford yeah. to help him produce his uh, album and create his sounds. It's a lot like that where it's a little more, I guess, uh, you're making that accessible to everyone now. I'd like to see myself as that engineer mm. providing the sounds so you can use it and realize your vision. So the way I designed those sounds, I provide macros where you can customize it to your liking so that so that so that you can make it sound different. So um really it's all about how you use the tool and how you use those sounds. It I wouldn't look down it on it at all. I mean lots of tracks 
from back in the day were made from presets on on the synthesizer. So yeah, I don't see it any different to that today. You raised an interesting point about Goldie because I was re- recently watching a uh, interview with him on SBTV, which was done about six years ago. I think it was when he was releasing uh, Journeyman around that sort of time, or maybe it was his greatest hits he was putting out. Um, and what's interesting about that is he had this flip chart where he would draw out the arrangement of a track that he would show yeah. his engineer, and the engineer would come up yeah. with the sounds and sort of programming. And Goldie, like myself, think he's, he's dyslexic and that sort of stuff. So in terms of his um, his basic sort of musicianship, sort of producer sort of like craft, um, I'm sure he's very gifted, but technically he's obviously not, he's not Fotech, shall we say that? He's not, he's not Fotech yeah. in that regard. Yeah. Um, so just, I find that fascinating because uh, if I'd not watched that, that's a completely unique way to arrange and think about a song, even before you've put your fingers on the keyboard and you've selected your sort of samples. So is that something that you've done in the past? You've just sort of scribbled down sort of ideas or shapes or whatever um, that sort of fed into your own sort of song arrangements? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'll write down ideas uh, on paper in terms of um, of how I want an arrangement to evolve. Uh, for me, uh, once you have a creative, because I am very technical, once you have that creative process down, uh, it's more in my head, so I don't really have to put it down into notes. It's more that um, once I have a general track down, then I might put that, I'll listen through the track and put that notes in terms of, what I want to edit and where, right? So I, I think it's different for every producer, but um, definitely having a, I guess, um, visual idea of how your track could turn out helps. So I just want to ask you like a hot take question on this one. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here. So if every yeah. uh, music producer uses splice to find their samples, their loops, their drum kits, is there a risk that the building blocks of a great track are easily recreated and the magic and originality of just sort of general building blocks of track design is just going to be so uh, easy available um, that sounds it's going to become more homogenized in a way, whereas back in the day, people would have to go crate digging and find really obscure uh, records to sample, which nobody would ever think of, you know, grabbing a piece of this, grabbing a piece of that from. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what your sort of general feeling is about that. Yeah, for me, uh, it the artists that do something different are always the ones that stand out and succeed, uh, even back in the day. So I think that's still is true today. It's just um, everything has just grown ex- exponentially. I think it's a great thing that music is more accessible. If you want to make music, it's easier to access those tools and sounds today. So there's just more music that's being made today, but there's even more opportunity to be original then. Because if everyone else is doing the same thing, then if you do something different, then you'll stand out more. So that's the way I look at it. Just on the nature of, I guess, the disposability of music. I'm assuming here, or I guess I can't. I guess it's sort of general, a general assumption here, that to produce like a really full-bodied drum and bass track is going to take a bit longer than perhaps producing, uh, say, like a trap, a trap banger for say. Um, uh, who am I thinking? Like uh, Little Tracy, say, throw a real obscure name out there. Okay. Um, because they can literally sit down in a, in a day and they can make like six beats. And I just wonder in terms of your sort of like process and the way that you create tracks, it, do you get the same amount of sort of throughput through? Obviously, you've had 25 years experience doing it now, so I imagine you've sort of sped up. But when you were starting out, how many sort of tracks would you typically produce over the course of a week? 
Uh, it depends on, on the uh, inspiration, creative flow. There's sometimes where you have a lull in output and it's more about um, working in the background, creating samples and sounds, and I'm not actually making tracks. Uh, and every track is different. Some tracks, the creativity just flows and it kind of writes itself. So a track could uh, finish on its own in a, in a couple hours, whereas some tracks you have the basic idea down, but you may not come back to it until a month or two. So um, uh, I do think compositions in terms of drama and bass are a little more involving because uh, of the way it's arranged and the, the different parts of a track. Um, so all the little pieces that make up the whole take a little more time. Uh, I do make trap and hip hop as mm -hmm. well. And I do find it, it comes out simpler. It's all about creating a, a nice groove and then you can arrange it um, based on the vocalist. So um, I, I mean, I, I enjoy both genres. So I, right. yeah, I think the process is just a little bit different. So I'm just going to ask you a very hard-hitting question now. Sure. So what is the future of drum and bass music over the next five years? And is the aim and break still going to be king? Yeah, so that's a very quick question. I'll answer the latter question first about the aim and break because um, with the advent of AI technology, I mean, before, I, I, I do agree. At first, I, I, I would think there would never, ever be an, a break better than the Amen. There's just no recording out there that has those sonic possibilities, the fullness that I spoke about before. But just recently, I just discovered some people using AI technology to create breaks from scratch. Um, and it's just astounding because now you can use AI to create breaks that never existed and i've heard some of these breaks and they sound they have the tonality uh that's coming very close to the amen yeah. so i could definitely see breaks um in the near future that could be even better than the amen it's it's just wow. insane what ai could do um yeah and do you think in terms of sort of drum bass is there a particular sort of sound because we spoke about the idea of sort of two-step like duke um, like I guess like liquid, like rollers um, could make a sort of like comeback or do you see that there being like a completely new sort of style of drum and bass perhaps emerging? Yeah, yeah. So about the future of drum and bass, I think it will, I think just the tempo itself will always be around. It's just universal. That 170 or even 160 BPM, mm. it's just a tempo that, that has this specific energy and vibe, whatever you would like to label it as. I mean, the name may be different five or 10 years down, but it's still the same tempo. It may still have the same similar groove. So um, I'm, I'm excited. I think the style will be around for a long time because it is so um, closely intertwined with technology as technology evolves, the style evolves. So I, I'm just very excited to see this music grow and whether it's called drum and bass or it has a different name, I think it'll always be around. And uh, finally, what's your dream project if money and time wasn't an issue? Uh, I would just like to be making music, being creative. Um, I would like 
just doing whatever I'm doing now. Uh, once again, I'm grateful with where I'm at today and what I'm doing now. And I just want to be doing that more and um, hoping my, my, my dream is to help as many people out as possible, helping others succeed in music. That is my mission and that is my goal. And on top of that, I want to just keep making music and putting music out there. And so lastly, where can people check out um, your YouTube videos, your socials, your Instagrams and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think the best way to uh, look me up, just go on YouTube and search Stranger. That's S-T-R-A-N-J-A-H. Otherwise, you can find me on all your favorite social media. I'm very active on Instagram, on TikTok, and obviously on YouTube. It's, it's easy to search. You can Google me. You can find me on all those platforms just, just by hitting my name. And also, uh, I just came to my mind, you also have got a Skillshare course that people can jump on and learn yeah. drum programming um, there as well. Yeah, so if you're interested in learning the, the basics of drum programming, if you're a beginner who wants to get into Ableton, then I have a three series course on Skillshare where you will learn the basics of drum programming from hip hop, house, funk, soul, all the way to dubstep, drum and bass, footwork and all the goods. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, giving me, you know, an insight into your creative process and your journey and drum and bass music. I really so there you have it. it. I had a great time chatting with Stranger. And you can check out Stranger's music, production kits and music tutorial videos at stranger.com right now. Just hit the link in the description box below. And don't forget to check out more great content on aruba.com from film reviews, video game hot takes and top 10 videos. And why not sign up and become a member and share your passion for all things entertainment on aruba.com today. And you can like and subscribe to I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify and YouTube. And maybe leave a comment or review if you like. And don't forget to leave a small tip in my Bitcoin jar if you loved this episode, as it really does help the podcast. You can find the address to my Bitcoin wallet in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.